It's been one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began. Millions of Ukrainians are displaced around the world. More than 300,000 Ukrainian and Russian soldiers have been killed or wounded, according to the UN. And the war shows no signs of stopping. Today, we wanted to bring you a bonus episode featuring a live-streamed conversation recorded on Friday, February 24th, with two of my colleagues. Mark McKinnon is The Globe's senior international correspondent, and he joined us from Kyiv, Ukraine. And Paul Waldy is our Europe correspondent, and he was in Warsaw, Poland. We talk about the people that they've met this year, what it's like to be reporting on the war, and where things are headed now. I'm Anika Raman-Wilms, and this is The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. And today we're talking to two of our international correspondents. We've got Paul Waldy, our Europe correspondent, uh, he's, and he's in Warsaw, Poland. Uh, hi, Paul. Uh, and uh, we've also got Mark McKinnon, who's our senior international correspondent, and he is in Kyiv, Ukraine's capital today. Hi, Mark. Hi, Manika. Uh, Mark, your sound is a, is a little rough, but we're going to get that sorted out. Uh, of course, we are doing a live broadcast from Kyiv, so we'll, we'll iron these things out. Uh, but, but Paul, let me ask you now. So you're you're one country over. You're in in Poland, in the capital Warsaw, uh, and and Poland is a country that's taken in a lot of Ukrainian refugees. Actually, 1.5 million refugees in the last year. Uh, so, so what is Warsaw like today on this anniversary? Well, today, surprisingly enough, I think they, they expended all of their energy ever in President Biden here earlier in the week. So there, there actually has not been a lot. So there is a big demonstration going on right now uh, outside the Russian consulate, and then people are going to move up to the Polish parliament. There was also a, a plaque unveiling off the street here, and some people gathered at 4 a.m. this morning to light some bonfires, kind of marking the first uh, hours when the, the missiles struck in, in, uh, in Ukraine. So there hasn't been a lot in Warsaw this week. There is a lot going on across the country, though, in other cities. There's marches, there's demonstrations, there's ceremonies, public ceremonies and that. So I think people here in Poland do feel this war very acutely, both on a sort of global context of Russia being so close and Ukraine being so close and the war being so close, and on a humanitarian level. So many people are seeking help here in Ukraine, and I and half people still here uh, waiting to find out when or if they'll be able to go home. Mm-hmm. And a year into this conflict, Paul, how willing is Poland to still support Ukrainian refugees? Obviously, this this is a country that is, has done a lot already. Uh, but what is the sense going forward at this point? Well, it's really interesting because if you look at the history of Poland, it has not been a country that's been real receptive to refugees, let alone refugees from Ukraine. The, the history post-World War II history uh, between Poland and Ukraine was, was quite bad. And if you talk to elder Poles here, they have a real uh, almost hatred towards Ukrainians because of what happened during the Second World War. All of these, it's a massacres on both sides. Uh, and then, of course, you, when you saw the Syrian refugee crisis hit Europe, Poland was very eager to keep them out of their country. And in fact, they've been putting up barriers and putting up walls along the border with Belarus because Belarus was funneling refugees uh, in across their border. So that the history here hasn't really been one of a very welcoming country but all of that you know remarkably has been swept away when it comes to ukraine now, this country has set aside its past antagonism towards ukrainians even elderly uh, poles are taking in ukrainian families i met an 84 year old man who you know grew up in ukrainians and is hosting a family in his house i i think there's just a real sense that that this 
war with Russia and this aggression by Russia trumps everything in this country. And it's if there's one thing they're very aware of, given the history here of communism, given the history of, you know, being oppressed by an outside force, the one thing they're very acutely aware of is the danger Russia poses to them. So that supersedes everything. And you're seeing that's why I think such an outpouring of support for people from Ukraine. Yeah. Uh Paul, I'll just give you a few more numbers here. Uh, there, of course, there's eight million people who have left Ukraine uh, since the in the last year. Uh, latest data from the UN says uh, over seven thousand civilians have been killed in Ukraine, uh, and that, of course, does not include Ukrainian soldiers or Russian soldiers. Uh, Paul, these numbers are staggering, really, but it, I think it can be hard to comprehend such big numbers sometimes. So I wonder if you have any specific stories um, over your time of, of reporting in the last year here that that help you understand the human toll well i think you know the people we met in the first few days of the war coming across the border and again as i mentioned they were all vast majority were women because of the ukrainian government's decision early on to to ban adult men from leaving the people who left were women and and children primarily and of course that meant that families were divided all over the place that meant everybody was struggling on both sides of the border so it was very very difficult but the people we saw in those early days really uh, struck me in a lot of you know we showed us a pine cone he picked up to the border because she wanted a piece of ukraine with her for the rest of her life we saw other people who brought other personal mementos because photographs books other things that they really wanted to keep with them because it was their only thing they had from home and then we saw one woman natasha on the second day i think it was february 25th or 22nd going back to Ukraine, tears in her eyes, dragging her suitcase back across the border because she had children in Ukraine. She'd been living in Poland. She had children in Ukraine, and she felt she could not leave them alone now that the war had started. So the the, the stories we saw just in those first couple of days were very, very powerful. And of course, that just went on and has gone on uh, in the months that follow. And even this week, we met a woman who who is here with her four children, and her husband is being held captive uh, in Mariupol. So, you know, the, the human tragedy just doesn't end. Yeah. Uh, Mark, I'd, I'd like to bring you back into the conversation here. Uh, you're in Kiev right now. You've spent a, a good amount of time in Kiev and throughout Ukraine in the last year. Uh, but I wonder, Mark, what is the capital Kiev? What is it like today, uh, one year after the invasion began? Well, I think today has been surprisingly or, or thankfully very quiet. Um, I know a lot of Ukrainians woke up early today, checked their phones, expecting news uh, of an ominous sort. The uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky had forecast a few weeks ago that Russia would do something symbolic, as he called it, around the anniversary. And so there was a lot of concern that today would uh, be one of those moments where we uh, wake up to air raid sirens and, and news that a a fleet of Iranian drones and Russian cruise missiles is heading for the capital. That hasn't happened. That said, the city is very quiet. There have been, not been any uh, mass public gatherings of the sort you might expect. The, the largest crowd I saw was a lineup to buy uh, a new Ukrainian stamp that's been issued uh, commemorating uh, some, some uh, graffiti that the British artist Banksy had done in uh in, in, the, in the shattered town of Borodyanka, north of uh, north of Kiev. So there, there was an air of apprehension this morning. Um, and then uh, Mr. Zelensky has made some public appearances, as I said. And, uh, you know, there's a sense, I think, a sense of relief that nothing major happened today. Um, we've gone through this before with other major 
dates on the calendar. So I remember last year, Victory Day, May the 9th, the Soviet holiday. Everyone thought this will be the day that Mr. Putin does something dramatic and then nothing happened again. So it, it's it's just, you know, it, it's war. You can't predict what's, uh, what's going to happen from one day to the next. And uh, thankfully, it's been a quiet one here in Ukraine. Uh, Mark, of course, as I said, you've been covering this for the last year. In in your reporting and coverage of this conflict, has there been anything that that surprised you, uh, or maybe I can say, what surprised you the most uh, about how this war and this conflict has actually played out? Uh, every now and again, uh, and I did this today. I walk around Kiev, and I and I remember the early hours and days of the war, and how fearful everyone was that this massive Russian army was about to strike at Ukraine. Um, and I, I remember leaving Kiev a few days uh, after the start of the war because we decided it was probably unsafe to stay. And we, you know, feeling I'm never going to see this city that I've spent so much time in over the past 20 years. This is, I'm leaving it and I'll probably never be able to come back here because I'm, you know, under Russian occupation, I couldn't see uh, us being allowed to report from here safely. Um, and then, you know, the, the way this war has gone and how different it was from the idea that we would have, uh, you know, a three-day war, the, that Russia would quickly um, knock down the, the Ukrainian army and install a puppet government here in Kiev. All of that proved dramatically wrong. And I think, um, you know, when, when to, to, we've gone from, from that prediction to seeing the U.S. president taking a train to the capital this week, to seeing Mr. Zelensky walking around the center of Kiev today. Um, that is all very, very surprising when we pause and think back to what we were expecting at the start of this conflict. Um, or rather say at the start of the full-scale invasion. This conflict's been going on for, for much longer than one year, of course. Um, and you're, so you're, that's, you're that's the biggest like surprise for me. It's just, I was just going to say, when you say it's been going on for longer than yeah. a year, you're returning to Crimea, which was to annexed in 2014. Of course. And, and every Ukrainian gets uh, quite annoyed when people refer to this as the first anniversary because this country has... Part of it's been under occupation since 2014, not just the annexation of Crimea, but the conflict in Donbass. Now for, for nine years, there have been Russian-backed forces controlling part of two other provinces of Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk, and 14,000 people died in that conflict over the eight years that preceded this wider invasion. Of course, things have gotten dramatically worse in the last year. The numbers of people who've been killed has been you know, grown dramatically since then. Entire cities have been destroyed. So this is a different phase of the conflict. But every uh, Ukrainian that I've met has always taken pains to point out that their country has been in war for nine years, not for one. Hmm. Paul, I want to ask you the same question. Uh, in your reporting and your coverage here, uh, what what has surprised you about how this, this conflict has played out? I, I think what strikes me the most is, is just how people adapt to circumstances. You know, um, when I when I was in Kiev early on, people everybody was petrified of air raid sirens, and you know was was running to shelters. And even here in Poland, people were afraid that there was going to be attacks and missile attacks and invasion from from the north. But then you then you, you just people just adapt and people just become used to these kinds of things, and they go about their daily lives. Here in in Warsaw or in Poland, you know I go to shelters and I look at the conditions people are living in, and they're they're living. Their lives, they're carrying on. They're just, just you know, they don't want to be there. They'd love to be back home, but they're making do and they're they're making their way through their lives. You know, we we met a woman this week living in a two room apartment with four children. Another woman living in a two room apartment with with her two children. They share the living room, and their daughter takes the bedroom. The other woman, three of them in the living room, two sons in the bedroom. I mean, it's just 
an impossible situation for them, but they make do. They, they work as a hairdresser, they're working at McDonald's, they're working as cleaners, they're doing the best they can to carry on. And it's just the adaptability, and I guess it's just the human drive and the perseverance that everybody has deep down within them that really comes out at a time like this. Yeah. Uh, in case you're just joining us, uh, just this is our, our one-year anniversary of uh, the invasion of Ukraine. We're talking to two of our correspondents, Paul Waldy, who's in uh, Warsaw, Poland, and, and Mark McKinnon, who's in, in Kiev in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, we were a little sh- uh, uh, a little late getting started with the tech stuff, so we may end up going a little bit longer with with Mark. I know Paul, we, you have you have things to do actually to to report on there, so uh, you may need to drop off a little bit earlier. But we may end up going a little past. Um, uh, past the the forty five minute mark that uh, that we we set out initially, I also want to remind uh, the audience, anyone listening, you can send in your questions, uh, and we will put them to our correspondents. So you can email them to audience at globalmail dot com. You can see that on the screen there, uh, or you can send them to us via Twitter, and uh, and we will we will ask those uh, to to both Mark and Paul. Um, Paul, I want to ask you something else, uh, just because I, I I'm conscious of your time here. Uh, I want to ask you about, I guess, the act of covering the war as a correspondent, because I can imagine it must be pretty grueling, of course, to see the devastation, to, to speak to the people affected by all of this. Uh, but but as a correspondent, you often have to put yourself in a, in a vulnerable position to do this job, uh, both physically in, in a dangerous situation, but also emotionally, too. Uh, can I ask you, wh- what has been the most uh, difficult situations that you've had to deal with uh, in, in, in covering this war? Well, well, I don't think I'm not going to pretend to be some kind of a war correspondent on the front line or anything like that. We don't do that kind of reporting. So, I mean, it's basically been for me, myself, it's basically been more the human story. It's basically been going to places like Bocha, like Arpin, you know, months later and seeing how people are living and seeing them living in buildings that are still half standing, you know, apartment buildings that have basically been blown apart. And there's still people living in there waiting for help, waiting for somebody to come and help them repair them. I mean, Sure, yeah, it's difficult to, to, to see these kinds of things and to report on these kinds of things, but nothing compared to what these people are going through. So I can't even begin to to imagine uh, living there all the time. I can come and go. I can go in and out of that country on my Canadian passport as many times as I want. Most of the men there can't, and a lot of the women who haven't left aren't going to leave. So it's very, very difficult. I think it's emotionally draining all of them. I, I don't know how people you know, in Kharkiv who are living in buildings that are half standing get through the winter, you know, and I don't know how people are still in some buildings in Bucha that have yet to be repaired in Arpin are getting through the winter. And even in Lviv, places like that, that are considered relatively safe, still, you know, there's power outages, there's water shortages, things like that. Uh, and I think it's it's just very, very hard. And even here in Poland, the, the border communities of Jeshov and Seamus, as they deal with, how do we cope with 300,000, 400,000 children in our school system? How do we cope with thousands and thousands of new people registering with doctors and registering at hospitals? How do we cope with social assistance for tens of thousands of people? Imagine if that was in Canada, if you're in Toronto, and you suddenly had 300,000 foreigners arrive in your school day one who can't speak the language. I mean, it's a huge challenge for a country uh, at any level. And I think you're seeing it on both sides of the border, massive challenges that are going to go on for months and years to come. Uh, Mark, Mark, same question to you there. Uh, what's what's been, I guess, a, a, the most difficult situation that you've had to face uh, in, in covering this war? You, you've been in, in a lot of different places across Ukraine over this this last year. Uh, anything that comes to mind? I mean, it has been um, there have been different phases to this war. Uh, at the start, it was really quite dramatic. We spent those uh, the first I remember twenty four or sorry three hundred sixty five days ago. Um, the war began for for my colleagues and I with 
the first air raid sirens over Kiev and and just sort of diving down into shelters and and being very fearful when we emerged of, of what might have happened uh, okay. to the there. And uh, we ended up moving to a little uh, dacha, like a country house on the outside of the capital because we thought, you know, as the predictions were, the Russian army is going to be surrounding Kiev within 72 hours or what have you. And then we, our driver, for very understandable reasons, uh, dropped us off at this country cottage about an hour's drive from Kiev and said, I quit. I'm, you guys are crazy. I'm going home to be with my family and uh, you guys can you know, carry on from here. So we were left at this country cottage outside of Kiev, Adacha, with food for about 24 hours and, and, and no car. Wow. Um, and, and this country cottage ended up being located by, because not things that are not on tourist maps between a military airport and um, and and a an oil refinery, both of which got repeatedly bombed through the seventy two hours that we were there, and just the number of times that we had sort of dived to the floor and hug our luggage and wondering what what on earth we gotten ourselves into, while uh, Anton Skiba, our photographer, shopped online for cars to get us out of that situation. Um, so yeah, it began rather dramatically and in quite frightening fashion. We had a couple of nights like that where you just you couldn't sleep. Uh, this, as Paul says, you know we we can't compare the situations that we're into to Ukrainians because we can come and go. We do this, even though I've been here a lot this year, I do get to go home and, and sort of exhale and and, uh, and 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 leave this behind for on a semi-regular basis, whereas Ukrainians are sort of living through all of this. Um, and, 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 you know, we've most recently, um, Anton and I were reporting from Donbass, where it is really just a constant, uh, the, the sound of artillery, the feeling that uh, of, of unsafety that comes with that is just a, it's a, it's it's part of life there and uh, people I it's Paul says I, I have no idea how or you know it, some of these people who've just decided to stay in these cities that are on the absolute front line because they think it's safer um, not not safer but they just can't imagine life anywhere else and they think that somehow they'll be okay whatever happens and so it's 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 really remarkable um, that, you know the, the resilience of people to to sort of keep living their lives in the face of of you know absolutely terrifying events happening around them um and and you know all you can do is um you know salute the people who've, who've got the courage to do that because as paul said we as correspondents we, we can come and go uh we do have an audience question that i'd like to, to put to both of you here uh this is a question from john uh he, he says we've all heard the stories of how resilient the ukrainian soldiers and people are having in, are having endured this war for the past year uh, can each of you highlight a moment or an event that best epitomizes the resilience and determination of ukrainians to see this war to the end at all costs uh paul why don't we go to you here first uh, is there something that comes to mind here well, I mean, again, I'd have to go back to the to the first few days of, of the uh, of the of the conflict and the people we met. Uh, I've been working with a photojournalist from Poland for the last year, Anna Levinovich, and we we met people at a a shelter that hadn't really been formed. It was a vacant. It was an empty storefront in Seamus, which is a city uh, right ten kilometers from the border. And all of these volunteers had shown up. They kind of put up some makeshift tables and some were serving hot food. And buses were arriving with people from the border. Nobody knew what was going on, and it was just the the handful of people we met, who all women, of course, and, and were saying to us, "Just you know, we're not going to stay here very long. We're going to go back. I'm I'm determined to go back." I remember meeting one woman. She brought her house keys because I asked her. I said, "What is the one thing you brought back with you?" brought with you to remind you of Ukraine. And she said, my house keys. And she showed them to me. And she said, this is the key to my flat. This is the key to my 
my uh, front door. And, and yeah, I'm keeping them because I'm going back. And we, we met so many people like that who had brought not just mementos, photographs and things, but things that they really wanted to, to carry with them that would keep them connected to their country, but also something that they would take back with them because they were all, every single person was telling us that they were going to go back. And some have gone back. Many have gone back. Many have gone back to very, very dangerous places. We met people uh, in Kiev at the bus station who were heading, coming back from Poland, uh, heading to Kharkiv and even further east because they just had enough. They couldn't stand living outside the country any longer and they were going home. And, you know, there's thousands, millions of people have actually returned to Ukraine to some pretty dangerous places because they just cannot bear the thought of being outside of their country any longer. We just saw some of those images uh, that you you referenced there, Paul. Those are those are really powerful images of the things that you you choose to grab when you can't carry that many things. What you do choose to take with you out of the country, um, Paul. I know it's it's getting to to uh, forty five after. No, it's, okay. <laughs> it's okay. I can stick around for a bit because I was in touch with my colleague Anna, who's at the demonstration, so she's going to keep me up to date. Okay. I should be able to make it a bit longer. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, so we'll, we'll continue with both of you for about another 15 minutes or so here. Uh, so, so Mark, I will, I will give the same question to you here. Is there anything that, uh, that, that comes to mind when, when, uh, when you think about the resilience and the determination uh, of Ukrainians? Absolutely. Um, one of the projects that uh, my colleague Anton and I took on over the, the first year of the conflict, first year of the wider invasion, rather, was we decided to, to track. Um, we had about 15 or 20 characters that we ended up writing about eight of them just to keep meeting the same people again and again. And part, some of those characters, of course, were soldiers, civilians in, in many cases who had just been, you know, become soldiers on the first day of the war on February the 24th last year. Um, and what was remarkable is uh, those who we were meeting repeatedly, the soldiers, of course, many, several of them were injured, as, as you'd expect. And this has been, you know, an absolutely violent, uh, incredibly violent war, something that we haven't really seen in Europe since the Second World War, uh, or at least since the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. And uh, one uh, of our characters, one of the people we met on the met on the first day of the war, a man named Dimitro, he ended up with a piece of shrapnel embedded in his head. He'd been fighting in the southern Harrison region. Uh, in June, and uh, he and his colleagues, sort of their position became exposed and, and mortar rounds were fired at them and a piece of, of a mortar shell became embedded in his head. And while that would allow him uh, to get a military exemption, he can leave the military now, he could go to Poland, he could go anywhere he wants, basically. Um, when I met him again in December, at the end of the uh, conflict, what he was trying to do was figure out how with his reduced um, motor skills, um, you know, he was, he, he, how he could get back in the fight, how he could return to his old role as a sniper. And a, another, uh, you know, person we met with repeatedly was Mashi Nayam, who's, you know, sort of a semi-public character here in Ukraine because his brother was a journalist who um, played a key role in, in instigating the, the 2014 uh, Maidan revolution that overthrew the pro-Russian government here. And, and Mashi, who was a, was a lawyer, again, somebody who with, you know, you would never think of as a fighter. He'd actually lost his eye. Um, and again, in this, this time on the Donbass front where uh, he, you know, he got into a, a car that there was a, a, a mine placed underneath the car that exploded and he lost his eye. And so he's, he's having repeated surgeries right now, trying to, um, you know, trying to uh, restore restore as much of his face as he as possible, and while he, I don't think he'll ever return to the front line. He's in Germany or was in Germany getting surgery last time I checked in on him. 
his goal is to come back to Ukraine and to be here, and he wants to work with veterans to, to, to normalize the idea that this is how Ukraine's going to look going forward. Some of the people here are going to have injuries, and he wants to make that normal. He doesn't wear a patch over his eye or anything like that, but it's just this defiant sort of our, our country is, is going to look different than it did beforehand, but it's our country and we're not going to be chased out of it, even by a grievous injury, even with um, obviously someone with, uh, with injuries like his is exempted from the military and can travel abroad, but he's going to be coming back here. And just to continue on with this this idea of the resilience, the determination uh, of Ukrainians uh, to 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 keep this conflict, um, to to not lose any territory in this conduct, po- conflict, Paul. I want to ask you here. Uh, Russia continues to to ramp up uh, its weapons production. It's drafted uh, hundreds of thousands of more soldiers in the last several months. Uh, but Ukraine is is standing strong. The war has gone on for a year, though. Now, uh, is is a peace deal or a military win? Uh, is is that likely from either side uh, in the foreseeable future? No, it's not. I mean, and I don't think anybody's kidding themselves. Certainly not here in Poland. Nobody would expect this war to end anytime soon. Certainly, uh, the Russians are showing no sign of Vladimir Putin. If anything, this week we've seen uh, a ramping up of defiance, and the fact that he's pretty much eliminated any hint of opposition in that country. Uh, there's nobody, there's no check and balance on him anymore at all. So I can't really see uh, any any end to this war anytime soon. And you know what's what's what I find back, of course, and the people that, that don't get a lot of attention are the Russians who left uh, Russia and who were in Ukraine and left Ukraine and who are actually dissidents or actually opponents of the Putin regime and the difficulty they've had in Western Europe getting around, accessing their money, even getting a job. I talked to one guy here in Poland. He'd been. He's Russian. He's been living in Poland for a while. I lost his job. You know, they went around the office and said, you're Russian, time to go. And I think it's a very strange situation he found himself in because he's a complete anti-Putin, completely against the war, and yet he's caught in this crossfire. And another guy, George, who was in um, Odessa and left with his wife, he's Russian, has a Russian passport, crossed into Germany and got held for seven hours because the German police said, well, we don't do it. You are you a security threat? And he said, look, I'm a refugee from Ukraine. And they said, well, maybe not. So it, there are so many other stories to this conflict that don't get told. And the other one I, I'll have to mention is that we saw an awful lot of Africans who had been studying uh, in Ukraine. And when they left, and we saw bus of, a busload of, of men, all males from Africa who left Ukraine on the second day of the war, second, third day of the war. And they were treated horribly, frankly, by both sides, by Ukrainian officials and by Polish officials. And these are the kinds of things, the ugliness that, that it was hard to imagine that it, at the peak of a conflict like this, that racism could still be that pronounced. And it was it was horrible. These guys were the Ukrainian officials for days on end when they finally left, the Polish officials rounded them up, put them on buses. They had no idea where they were going and they were taken to separate shelters. So there's been a lot of ugliness on a lot of sides to this thing. And, and hopefully... That will end when this war ends, and, and that will come at some point, but not soon. Mark, I want to ask you another audience question. This one's from from Richard, uh, and, and he's asking about, uh, so what is needed to isolate Russia, or is there hope in somehow cooperating with Russia? If the West thinks Ukraine can negotiate with Russia, why have there not been successful uh, successful to date in reaching agreements? So I guess the, the question is uh, around negotiating with Russia. Is, is that something that, that is, is people are talking about? No, and and Mr. Zelensky at his press conference today was asked a few different ways about negotiating with Russia and whether 
you know, there was a way to achieve Ukraine's aims peacefully. Um, and I, I don't, and like Paul, I don't really actually see any room for that right now. Mr. Putin has uh, put himself in quite a box by last uh, fall, declaring that he had annexed to the Russian Federation the provinces of Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, Zaporizhia, in addition to Crimea. Because under the Russian constitution, it's a criminal offense to concede any Russian territory. So now he has uh, claimed territory that Russia doesn't even control. You know, they only controls a fraction of Zaporizhia and Kherson in particular. And so now he he legally cannot negotiate away these territories. At the same time, Mr. Zelensky, the mood in Ukraine right now is is you know especially after the the uh, success of the counteroffensives last fall in the Kharkiv region and then in Kherson. He would have, be out of office the next morning, as popular as he is right now, if he signed a peace deal and negotiated away any Ukrainian territory. And I would include Donetsk, Lugansk, and Crimea in that, the territories that Russia has controlled for the last nine years. So there's really, there's just no space on either side right now for negotiations, which makes this a war of attrition. And that's where things get complicated, because despite all of uh, the West's efforts to uh, isolate Russia, Russia is not being isolated by India, by China, by Turkey, by Brazil, by South Africa. Um, these countries have increased their trade with the Russian Federation and have allowed um, Russians to continue to live a fairly normal life, those who have not been drafted, of course. And the economy is faring much better than people expected a year into these sanctions, a year into this full-scale invasion. And so the idea, you know, there's no pressure right now domestically on Mr. Putin to make a deal. Um, there is, as Paul said, there is no domestic opposition that's still inside the country. And so what you have is um, a war of attrition. And, and Russia has a population many times the size of Ukraine. It's starting to uh, mobilize that population, draft soldiers, hand, hand them weapons. Now, these soldiers are obviously not very well trained. They're not professional troops. But on the Ukrainian side, I have met soldiers who have fought in the Battle of Kiev, in the Battle of Kharkiv, in the Battle of Kherson. They're now fighting in Donbass. These are the same troops fighting again and again and again, and they're getting tired. They're no one, you know, they, no one's loud, no, no one's saying that out loud yet because the, the line is, you know, we cannot stop fighting because this is our land, this is my family that lives here. And that's true. They're, the motivation remains very high on the Ukrainian side. But after a year of constant battle, you know, even those who don't have serious injuries, the number of you know Ukrainians who talk about the concussions they've suffered from being near artillery, I mean, this this is going to weigh in at some point the sheer size of the Russian Federation versus the sheer size of Ukraine, and that's why I think Mr. Putin believes time is on his side. The West has been incredibly supportive for a year. Can it do that for five years? Will it do that for five years? And that's why Mr. Zelensky spends a lot of his time trying to keep, trying to rally international support to make sure that the 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 um, affection for Ukraine right now in NATO, in the European Union, in the West in general, does not crack. Last couple of questions here, I think, before we uh, before we wrap up, Paul, I'm, I'm going to ask you this one. Uh, and when you think of all the things that you've you've witnessed and, and reported on in the first uh, the first year of the the war here. Uh, I wonder what sticks with you the most. So I guess if you can think about, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, uh, what do you think you'll remember the most? Uh, I think I'll definitely remember Tatiana, uh, the woman with the pine cone. I mean, it was just such a remarkable sight because we were, I think this was on February 26th, standing in this shelter that hadn't even formed yet in this kind of grassy patch. And she came rushing over. She said, you know, 
she started talking about the war and she started talking about why they're trying to kill us. Why are they doing this to us? And she told us her story of leaving her city in Northern Ukraine and walking the last few kilometers and picking up this pine cone. And she apologized for her, uh, the cups of her sleeves that you can see there for being dirty. And, you know, Anna took that picture of her and then her story just really touched me because it was, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a bracelet or a book or a, or a photograph that she, she wanted to bring with her it was that pine cone. And, um, you know, we tracked down some of these people after that and we kept in touch with them over the, over the last year. But Tetiana is the one person I haven't been able to reach. Uh, I'm still trying. I'm still trying to find out where she went and whether she made it back home or not. She told me she was a music teacher and, um, to see her again and i'd love to see her again to find out if she still has that pie cone and i bet you she does mark same question to you uh, a decade two decades from now what do you think you'll remember most about this year i think the the story that sticks in in, in my brain is the story of uh, uh, a little girl named anastasia Hitsenko. and to put this in context the day before uh, i had been covering um what had happened in the in the city of Izium, and where it had just been liberated from from Russian uh, control after months of occupation. And I, I Anton and I found ourselves at a mass grave or, or at least a, a very informal cemetery where they had 445 bodies were discovered. They're just these brown crosses. And, uh, you know, to be, um, you know, not to be too callous about this, but I, I'd been to places like this before in Iraq and in other conflicts. And it's always awful, but it's history that's being exhumed in front of us. And you're seeing these bodies come out of the ground. You think at least these families are going to find out what happened to their to their loved ones, their father, their sister, their brother, as awful as it is. Um, but I think, you know, being there obviously took took something of a toll uh, because the next day, Anton and I were working on, um, we were going to do a story about how Russia had been starting then in October to target um, Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. And uh, we'd heard about an, ex- an explosion in a town called Chukhuev, and we'd been told that the Russians had struck a, an electricity station there. And so we drove there, and we found that, that the missile had actually missed the electricity station, and then it demolished a house right next to it. And there was one casualty, and that casualty ended up being an 11-year-old girl named Anastasia Hretsenko. And it, just the emotion, the weight of it all. Um, I started talking to her father, Andri, and as a journalist, sometimes you try and um, connect with the person you're talking to, but it, just to get them to open up and to tell their story. And I told Andri that my own little girl was 12 at the time, and that I could maybe I, I, that I couldn't imagine what he was going through. And then Andri started crying, and I started crying for the first time in this war. And um, just looking at the pictures, even now. It's, it's very emotional because, you know, Anastasia, her house, when we went to go visit what would remain of it, there was just a soccer ball. There was some notebooks that could have been my little girl, could have been anybody's little girl. And it really just struck me that day. It was an individual death. There have been tens of thousands of people killed in this conflict on all sides. It has been, there are so many horrors in places like Bucha, in Mariupol, in Azium, as I mentioned. And sometimes you just have to, you know, look, look in the face of one of those victims to to make that number make a little more sense and to uh, to 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 feel what, a little bit of what this country has gone through over the last year. Yeah, I can imagine that certainly would be a be a story that would would stick with anyone. Uh, we'll have to end it there. We're almost at the top of the hour here, uh, but I, I want to thank both of you for for joining me, Paul Waldi in, in Warsaw, Poland, and, and Mark McKinnon in Kiev. Thank you both so much for for taking the time to to be here and do this today. Thank you for having us. This event involved a number of people at the Globe, but special thanks to Patrick Dell, the Globe's senior visual editor, Rebecca Zaman, our audience growth manager. 
and Michael Snyder, Deputy Head of Programming. Thank you as well to the amazing audience and programming teams here at The Globe who helped make this event possible. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Adrian Chung is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.